Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Psalm chapter 102. And um, Billy did a great job last night talking about freedom, the unseen thing that we have. We're doing a series on unseen things. And this is a series, this is just a thought, a few thoughts that I've had over the last couple years about um, the greatest things in this world and in this creation that we have are things that we don't even see. If you can imagine the, uh, the most beautiful microscopic things that have you, I mean, you've seen these documentaries on TV that are just astounding to the eyes and you can't even, you can't even see it with the naked eye. There are star systems that are so beautiful that we can't see them with the naked eye, but they exist. Uh, there are things that are so incredible inside of a person's life that you do not know. I mean, we do not, I mean, Victoria or Charcy or, or Eduardo or anyone that's in this room, there are things in your lives that are so incredible that nobody knows about it. And as a matter of fact, when you talk about uh, how much we know people, we know people probably want, we probably only know about one or 2% about a person. Uh, maybe, maybe even a little bit more if we're married to them or we're a relative. But there's so much that we don't know about people. And so God is this God that lives and functions and that lives in this beautiful state of eternity. And that may sound very simple to you, but everything about God, about the word of God, uh, the gospel, the finished work, the law of Moses, everything that we read in the word of God is coming from an eternal perspective, an eternal perspective. We can get so easily wrapped up in the now. We can get so wrapped up in the 3D that we live in time, space, history, future. Uh, we can get so wrapped up with what the media is saying. And by the way, don't let the media dictate the narrative that you have with God. Think with God. I was talking to one of my neighbors across the street, and um, I was unloading my truck, and, and um, I told him, I said, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm in touch with the news. I'm not a news addict, but I'm in touch with what's going on. But I think if, if you're in your Bible, if you're in your Bible, you're going to know more about what's happening in the world than the average person is. Because this Bible here is always current. It's always, it's always pertinent. And it's always, it's always going to give us insight on what God's mind is about what's happening. And so that's the major, that was the one point that we made last week is that God lives in this eternal state. God lives in eternity, in a eternal present, meaning that there's no past. and there's, God does not live in a timeline. God is functioning and living in the present. And when we talked about, we talked last week about little faith, remember? Little faith is never a discussion about how much faith or how little faith we have, but the word in the Greek there is better translated with short, short-sighted faith. And so Jesus is not chiding his disciples that they don't have enough faith, right? I'm sure that sometimes we feel like I don't have enough faith. Uh, it's never, that's never the question. It's who we are looking at. And if we have faith as a mustard seed, then we have enough faith to move a mountain, which Mountains in the Bible always refer to kingdoms. You can say to this mountain, speak grace, grace into this mountain, it'll be, it'll be moved. If you have faith of as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be removed, and it'll be cast into the sea. And so, um, so we live in this world of unseen. The Bible is talking about unseen character. It's talking about what the average person never sees. And you know something? I think that sometimes we bring into a relationship or we bring into actually a church we start coming to a church, and we're looking at that church to fulfill my needs. 
in a way that no person can fulfill, no organization can fulfill, only God can fulfill that. And, and I say that because there's a part of us that nobody knows and that nobody knows about you and that nobody knows about. And there's not, even the most closest person there's in your life does not know maybe some things about you. And that's okay. Do you know why? Because that space that we hunger and we desire to be known is a place that only God can know us. Okay? And that's a place that, that like, that no man or no woman could ever fill in our life. No career, no, 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 nothing can ever fulfill that. And so I think that when we come into a relationship or into whatever we're coming into, um, it's okay to sometimes feel alone, like nobody knows me. That's fine, because we see that in the Bible. We see men of God. We see Elijah. We see individuals. And by the way, the longer I think that you walk with God, and this is not great news, I'm sorry, I wish I could say it's great news, but the longer you walk with God, I think sometimes the more you're going to feel like, and, and don't misunderstand me, the more you're going to sometimes feel like, I'm a little bit not known, I'm a little alone. And what I mean by that is, is, that, is that the more a person suffers, the more and more they realize that the world that they live in is shallow and is not, is not deep, and I think we're all here this morning stuffed into this little house, this house, not little, but whatever, because we, we're not, we're, we, don't want, we don't want status quo Christianity. We want, to, we want, to, we don't, we want discipleship. We want to be, uh, we want to be, uh, we want to hear the, the message from the word of God that is the main thought, which is the gospel, the finished work. And we also want, we're interested in knowing Christ and not how, not how cool we are or or jazzy worship or whatever. I mean, we're just, we don't have it. So, but, so really God lives and functions in this eternal realm. Now, that's the first thing we said that last week. Everything, everything that God does in our life, okay, and this is a big point I want to make here. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. God is doing everything in his sovereign plan in our life to deliver us from living in the bondages and the chains of now, okay, of this culture and this world that we live in. And what we define and what people define for us as success and happiness. Billy said this last night. He said, we, live, we as Americans are in prison. We are prisoners of the white picket fence. That was a great statement, wasn't that great? We're in prison, we're in prison to uh, the diploma that, we got, that we're supposed to have. We, we lived overseas. Everybody worshiped the, the diploma. I got to have the diploma. And then they get the diploma and like, what? Now what are you going to do with that? Not a lot in this world that we live in. So the diploma is great. Um, but we live in the prison of having the nicest kept lawn or the nicest, coolest car or whatever like that. We live in that prison and we can't get up. Sometimes we meet our neighbors and I'm sure you've done this, right? You've met neighbors that are so in prison about, you know, about what their neighbor thinks about them. You know, we moved into this neighborhood. I'm sure that we've probably gained a lot of attention because all the cars that come in here. But we've, you know, our neighbors, nobody's complained and people love it and they're wondering what's going on in here. Um, but we live in an unseen. We look at things that are not seen necessarily, but we're living in the unseen. And God wants to continually deliver us from those seen things that are in front of us all the time. And so Psalm 102 verse 23, let's read that together. And I'm going to read it from the King James because I think the King James really does a nice job. Psalm 102, verse 23. And David is saying this. He says, he weakens my strength in the way. God weakens my strength in the way. Now, wait a minute. 
God weakening David's strength in the way. What way? Well, the way he's following and walking with God. Why would God want to be weakening David's strength? I mean, isn't Christianity about power? Power with God? Power over devils? Power over demons? Power over people? Power and authority? Isn't that what we hear? Isn't it more about, like, blessing and that sense of energy and power? I was talking with Colton and, and Zaya and um, Valerie yesterday that after, we go, after you go to the gym and you work out, you feel like you're just so, you know, I don't know, if you go to the gym, you feel like you have, these, you have this euphoric feeling of, um, you know, you just feel amazing. You feel powerful. You feel invincible, I guess. And we love that. That's why we do that, you know. Music today. The beats and the words uh, are, are, are created to infuse into a person's soul a sense of power and control and understanding and reaction and rebellion in some cases. Um, the world that we live in is talking about power becoming more and more powerful. Christianity can adopt that. And what, this is what you're going to hear many times uh, in, in just marginal Christianity is just the message about being more powerful with God. And that is what David here seems to be saying just the opposite. Psalm 102, verse 23, he weakens my strength in the way. Um, and here's a few things I want to say. Number one, God doesn't want us to be strong because the world we live in, uh, we're not strong enough for it. We're not strong enough for this world that we live in. We are living in a world that is not natural, but it's supernatural. And the moment that we forget that we live in a supernatural world, that we're dealing with principalities and powers, and... Um, and uh, spiritual wickedness and, and unseen forces. Uh, when we forget that, then we forget that um, we think that it's a, a battle of flesh and blood. And, and Ephesians 6 uh, states that our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is not. Do you have a personality conflict with somebody at work or in your neighborhood or in your personal life? Um, do you have someone that maybe is, is hurting you or injuring you? Or do you... And by the way, I don't think as Americans we've really suffered. I mean, we have not had our heads sawed off with, uh, by radical uh, religious groups yet. Uh, we've had a very, very good history in the United States, although we've had, we've had hardship. But I don't know how much we've really suffered. But like when we do, when we suffer and when we, those things happen to us, um, remember that you're not battling flesh and blood. You're not battling family members' flesh and blood. You're dealing with unseen Powers And the reason is, is that God is not trying to make you and I more powerful people. God is trying to make us understand that he is strong in our behalf. And I want to I explain what I mean by that. Um, God wants us to be supernaturally strong. God doesn't want us to be weak towards sin. God doesn't want us just to be strong. Because there's a lot of strong people that are not strong enough, right? There's a lot of strong people that are not strong enough. And God has to sometimes deliver us to situations to show us that um, we want to be strong as a Christian so that in a way it looks good, like we look like we're strong, you know, like, OK, I've planted all these churches in Ukraine. I've done this in Poland. I've done this. You know, I could talk about that. I could come up with my resume as a pastor and say, this is what I've done. And you need to go to my church because I've done this. By the way, that's great. But OK, that's great. And I'm thankful for that. But today, what is the most important thing for my walk with God today is that I'm walking with God in Houston on a daily basis, because if that's my, if I'm living in my past and what I did in the past and my, my, my spiritual resume, guess what happens? I may not be a spiritual person today and I may not be walking in the spirit. And that is just, 
That is just so destructive, isn't it? Um, and it's destructive because what happens is that people think that I just need to do a great job doing something and then I can just kick back. I had someone tell me, literally, we moved back from Poland and from Ukraine, and a guy told me, he said, and a guy that, you know, well, anyway, he said this to me. He said, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't do another thing in your life as a Christian, you would have done so much more than X amount or whatever, and he started using measurements. And I just said, I said, that doesn't matter. I mean, that, all of that is crucified with Christ, right? All my successes and all my failures are crucified with Christ. All of these things are crucified with Christ. And what matters today is my walk with Jesus Christ. So when we live in this, when we live in this sense that I've got to be strong um, to, be, to be pleasing to God, I've got, to, I've got to appear strong and in control. I've got to be, I've got to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I mean, am I, you know, are you following me here? Do we have that sense sometimes in Christianity that we've got to be strong and powerful and mighty and, you know, the most fit person in the room? And I like to be fit. I mean, that's not the issue, though, with God. So when we get that way, we discover that I'm not strong enough because we live in a supernatural world. And this supernatural world de- demands supernatural living. And guess what? We can't do it. In marriage, we need supernatural. We need supernaturalness. And it doesn't work. And, and if we're living only in our natural strength. And so, as a matter of fact, the law of Moses, and it just dawned on me this morning, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, describe life in a utopia. No one's stealing. No one's taking anybody's spouse. No one's killing anybody. You know, no one's, you know, it's just, you know, everybody's loving God. The God no one's putting anything behind, before, the, before God as their God. But that is a world, a theoretical, idealistic utopia that demands a supernatural power that we can't supply. The law of Moses demands a supernatural power that no one could ever, ever fulfill. So when you and I read the law, and by the way, I understand we want to teach the Ten Commandments to our kids and in Sunday school, but we have to be careful with that. The law is holy. We have to be careful that, that we don't make that the Christian life. We just say that is what a spirit-filled life looks like, but it's not our. It's not what we're trying to attain to, because any law, which is whether it's the law of Moses or the law of perfect health or the law of 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 of, of great financial uh, stability or the law of political uh, stability or social stability, all of these things are laws that cannot be maintained naturally. You got it. That means like that's why we that's why we struggle with social law. That's why we struggle with religious law. All of these laws that we cannot, all these laws that we cannot fulfill, because they demand a supernatural response. And 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 if we do not understand who we are in Christ, then we're, we we fall short. And when we fall short, Pastor Schaller calls it the frustration index. Here's what happens. Um, here's what happens is that we have an ideal. This is the way I've got to be as a wife. This is the way I've got to look. Or this is the way I've got to be as a man. This is the way I've got to be at my age group. This is the way it's got to be in my life. I've got to be at this point in my life. This is what I've got to be doing with this my life. And I've got to be a grandparent or, or whatever the weird laws that people have in their head. When we're not there, and by the way, 99.9% of the time we're not there. And it's just because we, it's just because of the way it is. We are measuring ourselves to our ideal or to the law that we think we're supposed to be living in. And we're looking at our experience today and we're saying, I'm not meeting up. Do you ever feel that way? 
we're always we're whoa, 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 everybody's like talking. <laughs> I, I, have, I had a, a sore spot there. I mean, there's points when we really feel like that we're not meeting the, we're not meeting the, we're not meeting it. And guess what? That's good. It's good that we discover that. It's good that, it's good that, um, you know, it's good because whatever the law is, religious or social or economic or, or, or health-wise, these ideals we cannot live in because they demand a supernatural response. They just demand, when you discover you're not, you're not patient enough, guess what? Patience is supernatural. All the, get, all the fruits of the Spirit in, 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 Gal- in Galatians chapter 5 are supernatural. You know, sometimes people ask me, do you have all the gifts? I say no. I, but I really want to focus on do I have the fruits of the Spirit? Because that's, that's, the, that's the measure, right? That's how, how do we measure a Christian's life? Not by gifts. Because you know, a person can be very gifted but very carnal. A person can be very talented but not anointed. A person could be very able. A person could be a great speaker or a great leader and a great organizer. But when you hear them, they're saying like stimulating words. There's, there's really or, you know, orative um, capabilities. But it's just, it's just an empty suit. And we don't want that. We want, amen. We want, um, we want, um, we want content. When we sit down, you know, like we want to, we want to, we want to, um, when we break bread together, we want, we want that content, that broken life of crisis. So let's stop trying to live in this standard that doesn't necessarily mean anything to God. Let's look, let's look at what God is focusing on. And that's Psalm 102, verse 23. He weakens my strength in the way. And I tell you, when we moved to Texas, every church that we've ever been a privilege, have the privilege of being a part of seeing born, God does it a different way. And we can never figure it out. There's no formula to church plan. It's just very simple. Make disciples. These disciples are going to create a church. And that church is going to create, make disciples. And, and if we're doing that, we're being, we're being obedient to the Great Commission. But God is continually weakening your strength in the way. Okay? Let's not, and that, that disturbs us because we, don't, we want to be powerful. We want, in some way, our strength, we want it to look well for us. It never looks amazing when there's weakness in your life. It doesn't seem to attract people. Like, you know? You know what I'm saying? Like, and you can think of some successful people in the world, but you're going to see a lot of pain that nobody knows. And so... Um, and this is what happens. I feel like saying up. <laughs> this is what happens. It's like when, we're, when we are taking our eyes off of Christ, and we talked about this last week. Billy said this last night a little bit too. When we take our eyes off of Christ, what happens is, is that we take our eyes off the tree of life. And guess what our conversation and our thought life begins to be? This is good. This is bad. I'm good. She's bad. He's bad. I'm good. It becomes like, and, but guess what also? I thought about this last night too, driving home. Is that when we take our eyes off the tree of life, the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the finished work, when we take off our eyes from Christ who is the author and the finisher of our faith, guess what happens to our inner conversation? We begin to, we begin to talk like this. Uh, first of all, we run into lawlessness. Maybe we just run onto lawlessness or whatever your, whatever your bend is, whether it's legalism, you run into legalism or you run into lawlessness. It's one of the two. And then whenever we do that, either legalism or lawlessness, we're going to bounce back to the other side. Like if you run into lawlessness, whatever that looks like for you, mentally or physically, you're, you're going to get so angry at yourself or other people. And then you're going to bounce back to the other side 
and you're going to become your worst Pharisee. Yeah. And you're going to judge yourself. You're going to judge other people. How do I know this? Because I've done it myself. <laughs> Is that when I don't feast at the tree of the knowledge of, when I don't feast at the tree of life, I'm, I, I, do, I run into this and then I run over here and then I'm fellowshipping with a law that no one, not even myself, could ever, ever fulfill. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, here's what happens, okay? Here's a person that has a weak conscience, and then they walk around saying, oh, Christianity is so bad. I mean, this is bad. This is bad. This should be Book of Acts, and it's not this, and everything's so carnal. And, and, and it's like, okay, that's true, but, but what tree is that coming from? What tree is that coming from? Are you reacting to something in your life that you're struggling with that you can't get to seem to have victory over. And so, so how does God weaken our how does God weaken our strength in the way? How does God do this? And I think that's pretty obvious, but I'd like to look at Exodus chapter 12 because Exodus chapter 12 tells us a story about how God delivers the children of Israel out of out of Egypt. Okay? Exodus chapter 12. And what happens is is that God miraculously leaves these children out of Egypt. They're in bondage. And you know the the Egypt for us is a picture of the world change of the world system, the slavery of the world system. At first it looks amazing. We're going to be in Egypt, but then it turns, always turns into bondage. Things that we think are going to set us free always turns us into uh, slavery to something, slavery to sin. And, and God sends Moses in, and he leads them out. Moses struggled with, um, Moses struggled with um, power. He really struggled with power. And it was hard for him because God had to put him on an 80-year program to weaken his strength and to, so that he would not... Moses went to Bible school for 80 years, and then only then did he, was he able to commence into walking into the call of God, all right? And, so, and we're going to start a Bible school here in, in, in September. I'm really excited, and Pastor Adam's going to, Pastor Adam's going to help us with that. But um, we're going to have a 120-year program, all right? And... Uh, it may end, it may end may have you ending dying on a mountain I don't know like with Moses but Exodus chapter twelve God delivers people from these children of Israel out of Egypt Exodus fourteen what's happening do you know what's happening in Exodus fourteen who remembers what's happening in Exodus fourteen they stopped that's right <laughs> no but what happened do you do you remember what happened in Exodus fourteen they are what over at the Red Sea. They were complaining, but they're Red Sea. And what does God do? I am going to stand up. What does God do? God, God creates. He creates. He designs for us a, a place of weakness. Now, I'm not saying weakness towards sin, but just weakness and the inability of what to do for ourselves. Like, I cannot. And we just, just go. And so what God does is he creates this. He does, he does He's created like a designed, you know, these designer homes, designer cars, designer clothing. Well, God has a designer plan for you and I to be in a situation where we discover that we are trapped. We're trapped. And there's nowhere we can go. And here is, here's the Pharaoh, and his, and his armies are coming down. They see the dust on the horizon, they know, and the Red Sea is there. Not, they're not going anywhere. Children of Israel start murmuring. They're saying, why did you... Did you take us out here because there's not enough graves in Egypt to, to bury us? And what is God doing? And why does God do this? Because God is, God is working on us. Um, Moses stops and he says, and he tells the children of Israel, 
be quiet, let the Lord fight for you today because he's going to fight for you today. What's the, what is the point of what God is doing? He is designing something so that, because he has a purpose that the Israelites don't see. You know what the purpose was? What, what do you think the purpose was for God putting them in, in Exodus 14, back, their backs against the Red Sea? What was God trying to do? Look at him. Anybody else? Rely on God. Relying on God. Yeah, cry out to him for help. Crying out for him to help. Anybody else? These are all great answers. Will actually turn around and say, God, have God's power to yeah. believe that God could get them yeah. to the other side. I know what he says. I mean, I, I, I stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And I, I, I think this is huge for us to understand salvation. It's back to the wall, yeah. water in front of us, even though God is. Yeah. I think, too, you know what it is? And it just, I think that God had a plan to humiliate the Egyptians, mm-hmm. to wipe them out. Yeah. That's my to, once a, once, <laughs> to once and for all drastically make an exclamation point on the end of the Egyptian rule. And not only over the, over the Israelites, but you can see in Egyptian history, if you're into that history, that you can see the Egyptian kingdoms start on a great decline and confusion. Mm-hmm. And you can see that they were being taken over and, and in a process of destruction, there's these letters called the Amana letters that were being written out. And you can see that the, the Egyptians not only were lost it with the Israelites, but they as a nation were starting to fall apart. God's primary, God's primary, in addition to what everybody said here, God was trying to embarrass Pharaoh, humiliate Pharaoh and the Egyptians once and for all in a dramatic exclamation point. That is why, and get this, if there's only one thing you remember from the, the meeting this morning is this, is that God designs a difficult place for you and I to be in that we have no idea what's going on for the one great purpose, and that is to humiliate your enemy, to humiliate demons, to humiliate, to bring to bring the wisdom of this world to nothing, to embarrass everybody, and to make God great. Here's another example. Here is David and Goliath, right? David, we love that story. Uh, David is fighting Goliath. Remember what Goliath says to David? David shows up, this, this dusty shepherd boy. He's got a slingshot and five stones. And here's this Goliath. He's like nine feet tall or whatever. There's a big discussion about that, but I think he's nine feet tall. And what does Goliath say? You ever look at that, what he says? Goliath begins to curse David in the name of his gods. Now, have you ever been demonically cursed at by, 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 by not just people, but just like you feel like the atmosphere is just throwing all this stuff at you, and you feel like this is more than just people. It's just something demonic. It's just I'm being assaulted by the atmosphere. And so Goliath names all these Philistine Canaanite gods, which were all demons. And he's like cursing David. And David says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and, and the, the Lord of the army, whose Lord of armies that you are insulting. And what happens is, is that Goliath, what is Goliath's response? Just think about it for a second. What is Goliath's response to all of that? When he sees David, he sees the, he's not even Saul's armor. He's just this, probably laughing. In my dog. Yes. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. He's like, what? Like, where's Saul? Is this the best you could do? And I think, because when you're, when you're a warrior, when you're in sports, when you're like in, 
when you're in competition and you have someone that says, we're going to give you the best we got, and they just give you this measly contendant, it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? It's like, I don't know. You're kind of humiliated. Like, don't I deserve the honor of having someone that can actually kill me, that looks like they can kill me? But God didn't even give Goliath that. that he didn't even give Goliath that, that courtesy. God embarrassed Goliath. God humiliated Goliath. God, and what is, why, why does God put us in these seemingly weak positions where we don't seem like we're really strong Christians, but the more we are trying, the more we exercise, the more we're pressing into things, it seems like the weaker that we're becoming, it's because God wants to reveal to you and I that we're not strong enough, number one. And then number two, that we don't need to be strong. We need to let him be strong. And he wants, to, he wants to embarrass your enemies, the enemies that you don't even know about. You know, there's enemies, there's unseen enemies. And one day soon, I'd like to be able to talk about this, you know, what the Bible says about angels and demons. And I want to do it in a way that's going to be super edifying and not weird or scary. But you and I have enemies that we don't even know their names. And they, they come against you, and it's been maybe in your family for generations, and it comes against you. And the devil, and, and, and God is trying, God is humiliating these demons in your life by circumstances that, like, maybe, okay, here's, here's ambition, okay? Somebody, somebody, maybe somebody's very, very ambitious with a lot of energy to do something in their genetics. And then God, God just doesn't let them do it. And God kind of leads them in the other direction where it doesn't seem like they're very ambitious at all. And... They want to be, and they're bumping up into that ideal that they want to be ambitious, but they're not ambitious enough, they're not strong enough, and they don't make the cut. And then finally, they say, I surrender. God, I'm sorry, I surrender, I'm sorry, I gave it my best shot, I'm really sorry, and we're apologizing to God. But why do we do that? Because God is waiting for that moment, not for us to fall flat on our face, but for us to say, I surrender. To raise the white flag and just say, I surrender to Calvary, I surrender uh, I, I'm not doing this passive-aggressive surrender. We all know what that is. That's not, that's not godly surrender. But when we just surrender to the cross and say, God, I can't do this. I fall right on my face. I worship you. I cannot do this. And I need you. Because if you don't show up, we're dead. We're going to all be dead. We're going to be... all. It's the, the story of the Israel nation is going to end with all the dead bodies of Israel on the Red Sea. On the, on the beaches of the Red Sea. But what happens... Yet the Pharaoh's armies, um, the Red Sea opens. That's incredible. The, Pharise- the, Pharise- the, the Pharaoh's armies are marching into the Red Sea, chasing the Israelites, and that's where they die. And God delivers the nation of Israel. That is an amazing story. Let's look at Samson, for example. Samson, <clears throat> one of the judges of Israel. Okay. After this happens with Moses, by the way, does Moses write a song? Moses writes this incredible song yeah. about the deliverance. Of God, right? And sometimes there, back in the day, there used to be this song we would sing in worship, and it was actually the words of that song: "Great is the Lord who has delivered us; He has done mighty works." Right, and it goes on and on. And so, what does Moses do? He he magnifies the strength of the Lord. Now look at Samson. Samson is a carnal leader in Israel. He's very carnal. He has a, he's a womanizer. He's a problem with women. A definite problem with women. And he gets caught on it. And then, but he's in Hebrews chapter 11. And he beats the Philistines. And he says, and what does he say? What, is, what, is, um, 
Samson's story. Does he have a song about the, the victory and the power of the Lord's deliverance? No. He says this, I struck them all down. That was, that was Samson's testimony. Moses' testimony was the Lord has delivered us. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. Samson, who is the, who is the carnal but gifted <clears throat> person, says, I struck, them, I struck down a thousand Philistines. Now who gets the glory in that? In Hebrews chapter 11, his name, Samson's name, is mentioned. But it's not mentioned that he, that he beat a thousand Philistines. It's mentioned because he pulled down the, he received strength after his hair was cut when he failed with, with Delilah. He received strength to pull down the pillars. And in his death, there was more people that, there was more enemies, there were more Philistines that were destroyed than in his life. His greatest story was when he died. Okay? The point I'm making here is, is that God has to create these designed circumstances for us. To just, for number one, for us to understand we're not strong enough. And number two, when we surrender, when we surrender to our concept, our laws, religious, whatever they are that we're supposed to be meeting up to, we say to God, I can't do that. Then God says, now I can be strong. Now I can be strong in your life. And this is really beautiful because where's our strength that where's our true strength? Our true strength is when we, when we surrender to God in our weak place. And I want to finish with this is that why does God want to deliver us? I was reading last night I was listening to Billy speak and just this week thinking about this verse, Psalm 149 and uh, verse 4, it says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Now let's look at that verse here for a second as we close. The Lord takes delights in you. You don't believe that. No, I, I don't think you believe that. None of us in this room believes that. Maybe we believe it theologically, but we don't necessarily have a beautiful understanding of that, that God delights in you. Okay? I don't know. That's why we go to the world. We go to the world because we want to have that sense of delight. We want to have that sense of power. We want that sense of exhilaration. When you're in your weak place, when you feel like you've been hedged in on all sides, and you're throwing in the towel for maybe the 20th time in five minutes, that's when we need to look at God and say, God delights in me. God really delights in me. And that's a strong word in Hebrew. David says that God delights in you. Right, Lulu? God delights in you. I mean, God delights in you. Really, I just read it. God really delights in you. We don't, we don't believe this because the world tells us something else. The world tells us that you're not delightful. You're not beautiful. You're not desirable. You need to be this. You need to be that. You need to be more of this and more of that. Because everybody's living in this law that they can't themselves fulfill. So they just throw it on everybody else. You've got to do this because uh, you're not loved unconditionally. So the Lord delights in you. And because and David said this in the book of Psalms, the Lord delivered me because he delighted in me. You know what salvation means? It doesn't necessarily only mean eternal salvation saved from the fires of hell, but it means a deliverance that means a deliverance today. A deliverance today. You know, Ken was talking about, you know, during the communion, just about just confession and repentance. I think that's so important because when we confess and say the same thing to God, what he says, and we look at Christ repentance happens and it's not emotional and it's not like it can be emotional but it could just be a split second where we're like okay I'm right with God now because I'm starting to understand 
that he delights in me. He delights in me. He delights in us. And I think that this week, you know, every day this week, put it on a post-it note, stick it on your, uh, on your bathroom mirror. The Lord delights in me, and he will, he, will, he will adorn the humble. And what does humble mean? Humble is not something that is, is not personality. You may look at somebody and say, oh, she looks really humble. But that may not be necessarily a humble person. It could be very proud. Personality has nothing to do with humility. It can. I mean, a humble person can have a broken personality or humble personality. But humble personality does not mean that they're a humble person. Does that make sense? I could fake in my personality humility by walking around being very pious, but I'm not humble if I'm, if I'm living in emotional rebellion when God's putting me in this weak place. And so humility is this, is when I don't think too highly of myself. This is the way we were taught back in, back in school. I'm not thinking too highly of myself. I'm not thinking too lowly of myself. I'm not even living in self-awareness because I'm so wrapped up in God. Okay? I'm aware of myself, but I'm not thinking too highly of myself. I'm not thinking too lowly of myself. Because, you know, thinking too lowly of yourself is not humility. It's just pride. It's just we don't... Pride is when we have been dislocated from the thoughts of God and we're just lost about who we are. And we have to start manufacturing our, self, our self-image. And God says, I have to break that. I have to disassemble that. I have to rebuild the entire motivational structure in a person's person's soul. And this is what weakness means. It means that God is delivering us from our own strength because it's not strong enough. And you ever try to to lift weights and you know know you're not strong enough to lift it, but you're struggling and your arms are just not going up anymore? (laughs) It's like, look, this is not going any farther. And because we're not strong enough. And that's okay. We can lay down in green pastures. We can rest in his, in his everlasting arms. We can trust him. And last night's theme seemed to be so in tune with what, what I was thinking this morning is that sometimes we struggle. We, we face these severe, strong disappointments in people, in circumstances, in life, so that we can look to God. And then we can just rest and understand what Moses said to the people of Israel. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still and see. Don't stand still, be passive. But stand still and look. I'll close with this, is that sometimes we want to panic. And I have a friend, um, he's, a, he's Finnish, and he was a missionary in Baku, and uh, he was a businessman also. But one of the things he does is he does, he does deep sea uh, diving. You know, the big metal tank, you know, the big thing, it looks like. And he goes down really deep, and... Um, he trains other people that want to do that. And he says, most of the time, many times, you get really down too far. You go really down low. And the person knows that if you go down really deep into the water and you try to go up too quickly, you're going you're gonna to be very sick. You know, the bends. And he says, so when people get down that low and they can't see beyond their hand and it's dark and they're cramped up in this suit, they panic. A lot of times they just panic. And they want to just go straight to the surface. He said, but you can't let them do that because they're going to die. So, and so what he does is, is that when he sees his student or his apprentice panicking, he'll grab them by the head and put their, like, their mask right up like to his mask like this. It's like mask to mask, and he'll just look at him right in the eyes, staring right in the eyes, and not look away. And he'll just do that until he calms down. This is what we need. Is that when we want to panic, when we get spiritually claustrophobic because of our situation. We can't. We don't feel like we can get out of it. In your marriage, in your work situation, in your home, or whatever you're doing, and you feel like you're claustrophobic. 
God's going to take your head. <laughs> Jesus Christ is going to take your head and he's going to say, look at me. And when we look at him, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. Just don't panic because the salvation of the Lord, he's faithful. Amen. So do we have any comments or questions or anything that anyone has to, has to say?